dead saints who came back to life, went into the city and walked around and people saw them. And like, (laughs) that's amazing. Like, come on. This is incredible. (laughs) Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Geeks weekly podcast. This is episode 74. I'm Brian Sheely. I'm Ryan Joy. And thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. We're in week 32 of the End of the Book Bible Reading Program, which means we're wrapping up the Gospel of Matthew. Three Gospels down, one Gospel left to go in this reading. It seems kind of hard to believe that we're uh, this far along, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's our third time through the synoptics. Yes. So that has been really cool. These, these stories are starting to take some form, I think, within me, the flow of of these Gospels. Um, it's, it's really cool, this rhythm of quarterly coming back to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we got John left to go this year, but that'll be a little while. And uh, now we're finishing up Matthew chapters 24 through 28. So what are we going to be talking about here on the episode? Well, we're going to learn to climb the ladder of prayer. Ooh. <laughs> if you've ever felt like you fell into your own little pit of sadness, we'll find a ladder to help us climb out in the Psalms as we see how David's prayers lead him from despair to confidence. My sister once said that she felt like a little cloud was following her everywhere she went, kind of like Linus or Charlie Brown or something. <laughs> and sometimes you feel like like you just have one of those days. And uh, so David kind of shows us a way out. I feel like maybe 2020 is one of those years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all have a worldwide cloud of sadness following us everywhere. Yeah, so Psalm 13 in our Poetry in Motion series that we're going to get to in a little bit. But before we do, let's find Jesus here in week 32, Matthew chapters 24 through 28. And so where do you find Jesus here? I found Jesus in my brother here. There's that wonderful passage in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is separating sheep and goats. And in verse 34, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's a familiar passage, but man, that really um, should make us think. And it's one that's worth spending some time coming back to. We sing that song sometimes, have you seen Jesus, my Lord? And one of the verses is, have you ever been in the family with the Lord there in your midst, seen the face of Christ on your brother? Then I say, you've seen Jesus, my Lord. And we look around, we haven't seen him face to face. We've never gotten a chance to cook Jesus a meal, but he says here, well, if you've done it for any of these, then you've done it for me. And we've talked before about the power of seeing people around us and remembering that this is someone made in the image of the Lord, this is someone that Jesus died for, how that can heighten our sense of honor 
that we want to bring to people. But this goes quite a bit further, not like one step further, but way further as we think about actually seeing Jesus in others, not in a literal way, but in a way that he wants us to treat other people as we would treat him. And that is really profound. There's a quote from a Persian poet from the Middle Ages named Hafiz, and it says, How do I listen to others as if everyone were my master, speaking to me his cherished last words? <laughs> and that might seem like it's going too far, but the idea is that's how we hang on the words of others. That's how we look at the needs of others. That's how we look around and see the people around us is not that we think they are Jesus, of course, but that we look at them and say, how would I honor Jesus? How would I want to help Jesus in this situation? And man, that that's something I've got to think about some. Yeah, that whole what would Jesus do movement, I guess, maybe reframed here. What would I do for Jesus? Yeah. I love how he reaches down here in this statement. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. Right. He's not saying treat the really important believers around you well. Mm -hmm. Reach down all the way down, the least. Go to the very bottom of the rung of the ladder and grab them and help them. And I think that's even more powerful that he's talking to this group of people who feel like they're very important, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He's saying, look, you've got to you got to reach all the way down to the people that you never even really think about most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. The sense of honor among people who might not otherwise be honored is is throughout the Gospels. Right. This is just how Jesus saw people. And he wants us to see others like he sees them, to treat others like he would treat them. And sometimes that's hard for us. So the best window he can give into that maybe is to say, well, think of it this way. I'm your Lord. You know who I am. Now look at them that way. So that's pretty cool. What, uh, what, where did you find Jesus in this passage? Well, so I went all the way to the end of the chapter, the very last verses, probably one of the most famous set of verses that we read all the time, the Great Commission mm. here in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What I see here in Jesus after he is now risen from the dead is that he is in complete command. And I think that's what Matthew's gospel has really been driving toward this whole time is that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And now coming to the end of this, Jesus' last words here in this gospel to his disciples is that I have all authority and I am in charge of all nations. And I want you to take everything that I have said and teach that and command that to the people in all of these nations. And by the way, I'm always with you. There's never a time that I am not there with you. And so 
as Jesus is basically closing out this gospel, he is in complete command. He is not beating around the bush here. He's not being coy and speaking in unclear ways like he had been in the past. (laughs) Now it's just very clear. I'm completely in command and I want you to go everywhere and tell everybody everything you've seen and I'll never leave you. And I just think it's amazing. I love the shift, and I love how he just puts such a bow on this entire gospel. Very kingly. That's a lot of alls and a lot of everys throughout there. And it's interesting to me how many teaching blocks have formed the structure of the book, and then he closes with this statement about now us teaching everyone. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, I've never heard anybody say this, but I was thinking about how this kind of reminds me of the blessing at the end of Genesis 1, where God says, go and multiply. And there were these six days of creation and then this blessing to go out and then God rests. And that opens up this period of God dwelling amongst his people as it should have been. Of course, things didn't go quite so well two chapters later. But then in this book of Matthew, there are these six blocks of narrative divided by these different five sermons that Jesus gives, and it kind of feels like those six days of creation. And then the seventh day is us going into the world with that all of this teaching and bringing this blessing that Jesus has said, go and multiply, go and be fruitful, bring this teaching that I've just given you in these six days of creation, so to speak, of new creation and go with you. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> and I think if you haven't yet checked out the end of the book preview for this week, Uh, We'll have the link in the show notes to it. And I think that really does highlight that exact point. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't bring out that uh, that tie in with Genesis. But uh, but yeah, you can kind of see in the end of the book how these five different teaching blocks form these important transitions through the book that you might not have noticed how that all works together. It's a book unlike Mark and Luke, which, of course, have lots of teaching. But this is a book built around these specific blocks of Jesus teaching that I think are meant to be cherished, to be used for this discipling process, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's get into our next segment here, which is scripture du jour. What is the soup du jour? It's the soup of the day. Mm. That sounds good. I'll have that. So we're in Matthew 27 here today on Thursday, and this is a heavy, deeply important chapter. And so what do you grab from this chapter that really stands out at you or that you can use in your day-to-day life? Well, we're going to be talking about that lament psalm or that psalm where David is is kind of in the in the doldrums in the pit. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about how lament psalms play in our reading and even in this chapter of today's reading, Matthew 27, where Jesus quotes a famous and important lament psalm, which is also a messianic psalm, Psalm 22, where he says in Matthew 27, verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? And I think it's really easy for me knowing that psalm and knowing all that it says to just say, well, Jesus is pulling in all of that psalm into this statement and move on maybe too quickly from the statement itself. Why have you forsaken me, God? And while I do think that Jesus knows what that psalm says and he knows that psalm has a happy ending and he knows that his story will have a happy ending, we have to see that in saying this, Jesus feels that true abandonment and he quotes the psalm appropriately. He knows what it means to feel that pain as he cries out with sorrow and longing and the weight of the world's sins on his shoulders. And I think if we move too quickly past that, we'll miss the power of what we're meant to see by Jesus just crying out, quoting this appropriate psalm for how he felt in that moment. Well, and you go back to chapter 26 as he's there praying in Gethsemane and you see this same kind of concern. If it is all possible, let this cup pass from me. It's this natural human reaction to what he's having to go through now. And Mm -hmm. I think Seeing this human side of Jesus here, seeing this sense of abandonment and a sense of sadness and deep agony over what he's going through. I mean, this is just one more way to be completely connected to what Jesus is doing here and what he's experiencing, because I've never gone through this level of pain and agony. But if if I put myself in his shoes and put myself on that cross, I certainly would be feeling the same way. Yeah. Yeah. That that word forsaken is just such a heartbreaking word forsaken. Why has God, why has my God, who I'm so intimate with, forsaken me? And I don't think you have to get into trying to solve ontologically or, you know, in some deep way how there could be this some kind of an experience of Jesus feeling abandoned without a crisis in the Trinity or anything like that. I think we we leave that alone. You don't understand it. I don't understand it. <laughs> what we need to understand beyond the nature of God is what Jesus went through for us. Well, and my insight here at the end of this chapter in verse 50, just a few verses after the one that you read, Jesus cries out again, with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Amen. You ever feel, have that feeling like too little, too late. Mm. You have that aha moment after you can't do anything about it. That's what this centurion must've been feeling like, like, okay, at least the light bulb went on, but it went on a little bit too late. And so now people are starting to understand who this really was. But I think it's interesting here that Matthew brings out the events following Jesus' death. Yeah. He cries out with a loud voice. He yields up his spirit. I think Matthew here has probably the most detailed account of all the Gospels of the amazing events that happen after his death. Mark and Luke, they both record that the veil was torn 
And then Luke goes on to mention how there was darkness. Now, Matthew doesn't talk about the darkness here, but he does go on to talk about everything else that happens. The veil being torn from top to bottom, which there's incredible significance to that. Mm -hmm. But the earth shook, rocks were breaking, and the unique thing that Matthew mentions here is there was dead saints who came back to life went into the city and walked around and people saw them. And like, <laughs> that's amazing. Like, come on. Yeah. This is incredible. <laughs> yeah. You know, of the of all the things that could happen. And this just really goes to show that in some way, it wasn't about Jesus this whole time. I mean, Jesus was doing amazing miracles. He was raising people from the dead, walking on water, you know, all the amazing things that he did. But even after he dies... All of these amazing things are still happening. And it just says that this is God, whether or not he is raised from the dead three days later. And he is absolutely. But at this moment, it doesn't even take Jesus resurrection for certain people to realize, whoops, we got it very wrong. Yeah, yeah. I did a lesson not long ago that I called the day the sky went dark (laughs) and just walked through kind of poetically these events in these verses and it's amazing that they happen in like four sentences yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i want a whole book about what happened that day or during <laughs> those three six hours you know but it's extraordinary to see like you said what god is doing to emphasize and show the world how important this is. Jesus says at his triumphal entry, if you guys didn't praise me, these rocks would get up. And it's kind of like the whole of creation is feeling the pangs of what is happening. Yeah. Pretty amazing moment. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, you could just put yourself at that point in time and wonder, like, what would I have thought if I was back there and I saw Jim, who I had buried three days before, just walking around like, okay. I love the names that you pull out. Uh, Steve Steve and and Jim. Jim. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, yeah, imagine that moment whenever somebody comes, shows up around dinner time that you have lost years earlier. A saint of God who has died. You've gone through the whole burial process. You know, they would bury him once and then they would come back a year later. They'd put their bones into the the box and, and everything. It's all packed up and they've mourned them and now here they are risen truly risen and not just their spirits this is their bodies have come back to life and they're walking around i don't know for how long but they're walking around and they went into the holy city and they appeared to a bunch of people yeah all right so let's get into our last segment here which is poetry in motion and so we're in psalm 13 we have made it slowly (laughs) as it's been We're here. All the way to number 13 of 150. Yep. Yes. All right. So let's introduce the psalm. uh, And why don't you kind of get in? It's it's a short psalm, uh, only six verses. So what's this whole thing about? Yeah, this one does go by pretty quick and it does have some of the same themes we've talked about before. But there's this great sense of this psalm of climbing, as I said earlier, of climbing going from the first rung in verses one and two, where David says four times how long, which is this important phrase throughout all of the Bible. We find it early in the Old Testament and we find it in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Mm -hmm. Bible. We find saints under the altar crying out how long. And it's a, a plea in between the time where you're suffering 
and the time that God finally comes and vindicates you and saves you and brings justice and brings his righteous judgment on things and you're crying out. And so that's where David starts and he's wondering, kind of like Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? He says, will you forget me? And then he goes to the next rung where he's asking God to help him. And then the final rung where he is trusting in God and finding hope in God. And so I think it's really important for us to understand the value of lament. (laughs) We don't talk much about lament and we have forgotten the language and the power of lament, I think. And We don't really even like reading the book of Lamentations, I think. Super popular book. (laughs) And and I think that lament can bring us together because we have this universal experience of sorrow and travail and dealing with the difficulties of life in this present world. Mm -hmm. And I, I read somewhere recently an article on in the midst of some of these racial conversations and this sense of divide and trying to figure out how to deal with things and bring unity in the church and among God's people, uh, someone writing about the power of lament in that light, in the light of whenever there have been things that have have hurt people, have torn people apart, when there's you see bad things happening in the world, to pray together in lament and let it lead you, not staying in sorrow, but lament, as we often talk about on this podcast, leads us from one place to somewhere else. Doesn't mean you're kicking in a dance of happy shoes at the end of it. It's not the idea, but you found your buoyancy, so to speak, where you were sinking. You found a place to rest in the Lord and and found kind of a life preserver to hold on to in the midst of whatever flood you're dealing with. So I think that's something for us to remember as well as we dive into this psalm. So why don't you kick us off with verses one to two? Yeah. So diving in here, He is in the deep end, and we've touched on it a bit, but David starts out here in complete and utter despair. I mean, the first two verses here are just, if you stopped here, like with so many of these lament psalms, if you just stopped here, this would be a super depressing psalm. Uh, yeah. And, and as as we've talked about a lot with these psalms, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but it almost always starts out in darkness. And here he is in the beginning of this psalm in darkness. And the first verse here, he's just kind of looking around and like, who is here to help me? There's no one here to help me. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And I think that's the key verse here. In these first two verses, he's turning to God in in almost this prayer, asking, where are you? Not thinking that he's somehow disappeared, but the fact that he's not helping him, he's not taking him out of his present distress. And as with a lot of these lament psalms, we really don't know the details about what is causing David to have this kind of angst and consternation, but he is, he's in the middle of it. And verse two, he looks around to some of his enemies and the enemies that he has, they're taking over and they're being exalted. And he's just down low and feeling utterly alone. And so the key word here, like you said, he he mentions it four times. He says, how long? Four times he says this, how long? And that's a question I think that a lot of us are probably asking right now. 
in the middle of all this stuff we're going through mm. with COVID and, and all the injustice that we see and all just the d- division that we're experiencing, like how long are we really going to be putting up with all of this stuff? And he's asking the same question. There's almost nothing worse than feeling like you're all alone. It kind of reminds me of that song as I was thinking about the, these two verses, that song where no one stands alone and the first yeah. two, the the two verses before the chorus are the bleak starting point and the chorus itself is really the optimistic ending but the two verses basically say once i stood in the night with my head bowed low in the darkness as black as could be and my heart felt alone and i cried oh lord don't hide your face from me and the, the second verse, like a king, I may live in a palace so tall with great riches to call my own, but I don't know a thing in this whole wide world that's worse than being alone. And I think that's what David is feeling. And I think all of us at some point in time have felt that way to some degree or another. But with so many of these Psalms, it starts out in this dreary place and then it leads us somewhere much brighter. But it's not sounding glib and I, and I don't think we're trying to minimize anyone's pain or the things that they're going through, but you really do have to think about the light at the end of the tunnel because it doesn't end here. Mm. It continues on. And so if he's saying how long, and that's the first rung of this ladder that you've been talking about, where does he go next in his prayer that that becomes more optimistic? He asks God to answer him. He actually goes from mourning and asking the question, are you just going to leave me here (laughs) to saying, help me, God? He's actually making a request, which sometimes we can forget that part of the story, you know, to actually make a request. Like we often point out, Jesus says, what do you want from me to some people? What do you want me to do? And we have to remember that when we have anxieties, as Philippians 4, 6 says, or 1 Peter 5, 7 and 8, to ask God and to remember that he cares for us and and to go ahead and call on him. So he starts by saying, consider me and answer me. And then he says, light up my eyes. And then lastly, in verse four, he says, lest my enemy think that they won. (laughs) This word consider, I think, is an interesting key word here. It's like he's asking the Lord to think about him. Have you forgotten me? You kind of brought that up already. More literally, it means look on me. Like, look down at me, God. Look at me. Do you see me? (laughs) Take that gracious downward look that shows your favor and continual care for me. And of course, like you say, he knows that God is omniscient. He understands who God is, but sometimes it feels like you don't have God's attention and he's asking for it. Please consider me. Please give me your answer, your gracious answer. And that verse is a turning point in the psalm, but then he tells God his deep fear that his enemy will win. He says in verse four, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And I think that's the insight or the application I take out of this, this whole middle section of the psalm that I think I keep seeing throughout these psalms, but I have a tendency to gloss over, is this awareness that David has of the enemy 
and of God. And it's like these are the two terminals of David's battery, the positive <laughs> and the negative that drive him showing up in most of these Psalms. And if the positive is constantly being aware of God, his righteousness, his salvation, how God wants me to live, do I also have that negative terminal that David always had about my enemy, which is a much more fierce enemy than whoever David was thinking of there, whether it's the Philistines or Saul or <laughs> Absalom or whoever, behind whatever enemy, worldly enemy we might see, there is a darker, more insidious enemy that is facing us, that wants to steal our joy, steal our soul away from the Lord and wants to rejoice over us. So am I mindful of my enemy as often as I need to be and not being overwhelmed by that, but also holding on to my awareness of the Lord? As, as I'm thinking about this, as, as I'm hearing this middle part of the psalm in kind of a new way, David often thinks about his enemy. He often thinks about how his enemy is going to view him. And here he explicitly says it. But I don't think this is a prideful kind of thing that David is trying to hold up his position amongst his enemies. If you really start to mm -hmm. think about it, like David is the king over God's people. And yeah. David as the king over God's people really wants to put his best foot forward so that people, I think, eventually don't look negatively on God. And I don't think he says that directly here, but I don't think David is really taking this as personally as it might seem sometimes. I think David is often very concerned about how the Lord and his earthly kingdom here, at least at this point, is really going to look in the eyes of people who are around him. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think one of the key phrases is there at the end of verse four, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. <laughs> yeah. He knows that he is a representative of God. He is God's anointed among God's people. And he does not want his enemies to think of him as having been moved away from his trust in the Lord to be shaken. The real defeat would be to fail to hold on to God and on to faith and, and to let that sense of despair and loss sweep over him to the point that he actually has lost. You know, you can see that same David who boldly and indignantly said to all of the armies of Israel, why are you not willing to go and fight Goliath? You're letting the Lord himself be shown up by your fear and unwillingness to stand up against the enemy yes. is the one that's saying, don't let the foe see me shaken. Yes. I'm the one who holds on to God. Let God and God's people be victorious. I think the kings that follow David would have done well to have this kind of concern over how their enemy viewed them. And application mm. for us, I would do very well to really have a thoughtful consideration about how the world views me. And I think that's a, in a lot of reasons why Paul and others, they basically push us to have this concern about how the world views us mm -hmm. and to have a good standing amongst outsiders. Yeah, I think that's a good point. A lot to draw from here just by noticing how much he emphasizes and thinks about the enemy yeah. because it's the enemy of God. So where does the light at the end of this tunnel lead to? <laughs> well, it does lead somewhere. <laughs> and at the end of it, it seems, I don't know, when I, when I read these six verses just really quickly, it feels like David flip-flops 
almost instantaneously. He goes from two verses of, <laughs> of just throwing up his hands to two verses of really just begging and pleading God on his knees to two verses of just being very optimistic. And so yeah. at the end of this... Well, it's clearly poetry. It's like he has taken probably a much longer <laughs> process in his heart and structured it in this really well-formatted poetry. But it is really interesting. Switch, switch, switch. Well, and and I guess as a song, we sing songs like this all the time. You know, the verses... Yeah, like, you just quoted one. Like we just talked about. Starts mm-hmm. out sad, ends very happy. And that's kind of what he's doing here. So he ends this psalm... With extreme confidence in God. We see in verse 5, David sees and finds encouragement in God's love. And then in verse 6, he shouts to God for his amazing blessings. And so verse 5 here says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I think the key word that is used here in these last two verses is I and me. And I think that's important because David, I think, is recognizing that, look, I am fully in control of what I choose to allow to shape my attitude. I'm the one who's in control over what I focus on. And whereas the first two verses, he focuses on his loneliness and the fact that he feels like nothing is currently at this very moment happening that's positive. Here in these last two verses, he chooses to look back and to remember what God has done for him in the past and what he continues to do, and what he's promised to do in the future. And so, for me, no matter what this current moment looks like, there's always joy and there's always gladness in refocusing on God and what he's done, on his steadfast love, on his salvation, and as he says here, on his wondrous blessings that bring us back to, I guess, a positive frame of mind. And so, Is everything working out for me at the moment? Maybe not. But am I going to throw all that out and just have a pessimistic attitude? Or am I going to look at the Lord's amazingness? Am I going to sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me? Because he's continued to bless me, even though right now it may not feel like that. Yeah. And as you emphasize those eyes and mys, it made me think about the contrast with the verses right before. Mm -hmm. The enemy says, I have prevailed over him. But David says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. The enemy rejoices because I am shaken, but David rejoices in your salvation. And it's kind of like a resolute determination. I will not be like them. I will not let their thoughts and their efforts take away this confidence. And that is something I think we can learn from too, that I can learn from, that no matter what happens, in fact, as other people are behaving differently and deciding to rejoice in other things and deciding to say other things, I will say even more so, I have trusted in the Lord. I will let that contrast stand because I'm determined to rejoice in your salvation. Yeah, I think we talk about personal responsibility a lot. And I think that's good. I think that's important that we think about things in that in that frame of reference. But really stopping and thinking like, Nobody can force me to feel a certain way. Nobody can Mm. force me to react a certain way. It's always my choice. And I think David's showing us a great example of that here, that it's not 
his enemies. It's not his situation. It's not all of the negativity and the distress that is all around him that is going to change his mindset. If his mindset is going to be changed, it's going to be him that changes his mindset. And so if he just refocuses again on God and thinks about all the things that are amazing about God, then he can choose better. And that's, I don't know, that's never easy to do in the moment. I, I don't I don't think no. any one of us easily just pop right out of our sadness and despair to decide to feel differently. But it's always under our control. Yeah, and you wonder if psalms like this, verses like this, are what Paul might have had in mind whenever he commands the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. Yeah. Paul was shaped by these psalms. His life, his heart was shaped by things in, in these Old Testament scriptures. And, and of course, he's inspired as he speaks them, but they're coming from Paul as well. And, and he's thinking about all of these passages that just rattle out of him as he talks <laughs> and as he writes. And you see words like this of David, where he continually goes back, I will sing to the Lord. I will rejoice in you and in your salvation. And he wants the Philippians and by extension, all of us to get that this is a choice that we have to continually come back to rejoice in the Lord. Always continue in it. Keep coming back to it. And I, I heard someone say a while back the idea of you also have to pay the price of joy. I've been wanting to preach a sermon on it, <laughs> on this idea. Sometimes if you want to think on these things, Philippians 4.8, the things that are good and lovely and pure and of good report. If you want to rejoice always, as Paul says four verses before that, if you want to find peace, as he says the verse right before that, then we have to be willing to pay the cost. There's sort of an ante you have to put in, and that might mean I'm not going to listen to certain things. I'm not going to watch certain things. Right. I'm not going to be with certain people. I have to say, I kind of like this, but I know that that is not going to lead me to this kind of resolute decision to think this way. And so I have to pay whatever cost it is so that I can say with David, with Paul, I rejoice in you. And that's where my heart is focused. Well, this is uh, this is a great psalm, even though it started off pretty depressing. <laughs> at least it ends pretty positive. So that's good. Yeah, well, and I think the beginning is something that is important, too, of course, in that we all get there sometimes. And so I guess wherever you are in your life, there is a place in the Bible that you can find an entry point that will lead you to somewhere else. As we've been looking at this psalm, Psalm 13, and as we've talked about a little bit from Jesus' last days before his death, you know, this confidence that we have in the Lord, the trust that we have in God— Maybe it's a good opportunity this week to leave the negativity, to leave all of the cares and the troubles of this world behind for a few minutes. Go to God and express your confidence in him in your prayers this week. Tell him about what you feel like when you think about his blessings, when you think about his steadfast love, when you think about the care and the comfort and the ultimately the salvation that he extends to us. I think if we can go to God and talk about those things Maybe that'll help us in our own minds reframe what we're currently going through and maybe the difficulty that we're facing right now. Four words to remember, but I have trusted. Yeah. 
verse 5. That's a good way to start that prayer as you think about all the things going on in the world, but I have trusted in you and in your salvation. Good, good challenge. Sweet. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into the Bible Geeks podcast. You can find us on our website at BibleGeeks.fm. You can find show notes for this episode in your podcast player of choice or at BibleGeeks.fm slash 74. And if you want to get in touch with us and ask us a question, hear about something on the show, or if you'd like to just figure out how to support the show in any way, go to BibleGeeks.fm slash contact. And until next week, everyone, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.